This is the game that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friends. Some people started playing it not knowing what it was. Turns out it's called a roguelike and it's really pretty fun. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we're talking about roguelikes and all the new games from Hitman to The Last of Us to God of War. They're adding roguelike modes post-release. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Trier. Hello. 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 Hello, hello. my friends. Hi. Hello. Hi again. Hello. hello. Hi again. Hi again. Hi, everyone out there from here at Triple Click HQ, our listener-supported <laughs> podcast headquarters. It exists in a virtual space mm-hmm. in all of your dreams and in, in all of our dreams. It's a shared dream space from which we make this show. <laughs> Triple Click is a listener-supported show. Of course, you probably know that. But do you really know what that means? Maybe you do know what it means. Our <laughs> listeners are pretty smart. It means that we make this show with, with no ads. Well, we have some some trailers for shows on our network. And uh, other than that, we don't have any ads. Those aren't ads. Those Not are ads. Promos. promos. It's a totally different promos. word, and it's it a is different a, spirit. It's a different word, and it means something different. We make this show without any advertiser influence, without having to worry about any of that, because you all support our show, and we really appreciate it. If you want to become a member of Maximum Fun, you get access to... All of our bonus episodes, there are so many of them, including the most recent one that we just did on Things That We Love from 2023, an episode on Baldur's Gate 3, and we've got an upcoming one about Martin Scorsese movies that's going to be really cool. You can listen to those and many more at MaximumFun.org slash join, which is where you can become a member. Thank you all so much to all the members out there who keep this thing going. All right, let's get into it. Yay. This week, we are talking about roguelike modes and roguelikes and the kind of roguelike fever that has swept the world (laughs) of video games over the last year. Yeah, I I guess so. The premise here is that roguelikes have been slowly gaining in popularity over Mm -hmm. the last maybe four or five years. But this past year or maybe six months, it's been a really interesting time in that a few major games have had these infinitely replayable, randomly generated modes added to them, like God of War Valhalla, uh, Hitman 3 became Hitman World of Assassination, The Last of Us 2 in its sort of PS5 re-release got this no-return mode, and they're all interesting in different ways, and just made us think that it would be kind of fun to talk about roguelikes and this style of game and uh, why it's becoming more popular and these different uh, versions of it that we've seen. So I guess I should say before we get into why we like these games, why they work, why they don't work, when I say roguelike, there's, this is one of those annoying semantic video game things where people will get very particular about what it means and what it doesn't mean. Of course, the root here is this game Rogue, a very classic game that has a series of very specific parameters attached to it. And it used to be saying that a game was a roguelike meant specifically that it was exactly like Rogue in these ways. And then they would say it's a roguelite if it has rogue elements, but it's a little softer. You love taxonomies, though. I feel like you would love this whole definition. You know, I I do like taxonomies, and yet I hate genre. Is that kind of an interesting paradox? (laughs) No, that's... In all things, in video games... That totally makes sense. That makes sense. I like finding meaningful distinctions, but... I mean, I think we all hate being excessively prescriptive, too. Like, don't don't be drawing the lines and getting mad about them. We're not in favor of that. Right, right. That's it's helpful true. for it, right? I guess I find taxonomies to be clarifying, and I find genre to actually be confounding. They're yes. almost 
opposites in a weird way, even though they're so similar in terms of whatever their modes for categorization. So anyways, I'm not that concerned with that. When we're talking about a roguelike on this episode, we're just talking about a mode that is designed to be replayed over and over again in which you lose some element of your progress, even if it's just how far you've made it through the procedurally generated levels or through the thing before you have to start over. And that has some element of procedural generation, but also probably gives you some something that you carry on as well. Mm. And then past that, I mean, all of these are very different, actually, like all the different modes in these games I've talked about and then in other games that we've liked. So, you know, that that's just a pretty it's a pretty broad term that can mean a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. let's start just talking a little bit about. I don't know when each of us got into these kinds of games and what the first one of these was. I have a feeling I know what it's going to be, maybe for all three of us. But uh, uh, Maddie, why don't you go first? What's your what's your your history? Are we all going to say Hades? Is <laughs> With that what we're all going to say? Are we boring? No. Oh no! Okay, no, fine. I'll be the one that says Hades. Out of okay, mm-hmm. good. Then I'm allowed to be the noob, the the newbie who says Hades. I I don't really feel like this was a genre that. I knew a ton about pre-Hades, uh, which I think mm-hmm. is probably true of a lot of people. A lot of listeners are probably right there with me and, and playing Hades and being like, oh, this is a format of game that exists. This is very cool. And I really like the structure of it. I also like that Hades, by having a, a kind of specific home base that your character keeps returning back to, it can do some fun storytelling maneuvering where every time you return, you talk to different characters around your home base once again, and they're like, oh, you're heading back out there, huh? How did it go last time? And the plot mm-hmm. advances even though you're kind of this immortal demigod uh, Zagreus in that game who can't die per se, but, but certainly can, can be reset back to back to home again, which is just as annoying as dying in any video game would be. And even though the plot can advance and your, your progress is advancing as you go along, you still kind of have this very repetitive kind of, entry-level set of enemies that you're having to face every single time over and over, even though they become just dust on your boot heel <laughs> by the mm-hmm. end of it. And you're just freaking amazing by that point. I I really like that. And, and I feel like I probably would like a lot of other roguelikes since even though Dark Souls and Metroid games are obviously a different genre, they have some similarities in terms mm-hmm. of the repetition, going over old areas, fighting the same enemies over and over again. That's stuff I got to admit I really love in a game. I love perfecting my little combat mechanics. And roguelikes are all about that. And that mm-hmm. is something that's really fun about Hades and really fun about some of these other modes that we're going to talk about. Nice. Jason, what's your history with roguelikes? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been playing a lot of them for a while. I, I don't know if you would count the original Diablo since it was so inspired by mm. Rogue. Yeah, I think maybe. the one thing, what was interesting about the original Diablo is that it was originally conceived as a game with permadeath, which would have made it like a real roguelike mm-hmm. because yeah. every time you try right. to go down the dungeon, you lose and then you have to go back. Um, eventually, Blizzard decided, no, we're not going to do that. Though they, they still they do offer that as a mode. Right? Well, yeah. it's a mode, yes. Yeah. And there's a hardcore mode I remember playing. So Diab- when I was playing Diablo 2, 
knew a shitload back in that back in high school I probably would have done a permadeath mode a couple times maybe that was that counts as a rogue like more recently I mean I got really into Enter the Gungeon I played some Dead Cells um, definitely was really into Hades the three of us talked about that game a lot and mm-hmm. really loved it um, but I played a lot of these types of games and the thing that I always enjoy about them is that feeling of kind of like uh, being able to um, really experiment with new ideas or new builds every time you go. Um, and Hades is really fantastic at that because there's something really exciting about like, um, all right, you're doing a Poseidon build and you get just the right ability randomly generated from the door as, as you go through and you're like, man, yeah, now I can really deck it out and get some Zeus in here and so on and so forth. Um <laughs> Enter the Gungeon was also really good at that because Enter the Gungeon is a game where it's kind of you're going through a procedurally generated dungeon and there's these random gun drops and each of the guns just does totally wild, crazy things. And um, that's the whole the whole idea is that it's just it's the Gungeon. It's all puns about guns. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a ton of different types of guns and weapons you can find as you go and they make the experience really refreshing because even though you're killing the same baddies every time you're doing it in different ways based on the gun drops you got and it's really exciting when you find the best possible gun um like at the beginning and you're like oh sick this is gonna be a good run i could feel it um (laughs) and that i think is is something that's always really um just kind of contributes to that lasting appeal is like getting to know a game so well where you know like okay i'm gonna make a lot of progress this run and Mm -hmm. a lot of games that do that repetitive sort of thing are kind of like that and once you master them you know like okay this is going to be good even something as simple as threes which i play on my phone all the time sometimes i'll just know like okay this is going to be a a good run oh yeah still every single every single night that's always always the longest jason's ever played anything is threes oh yeah well threes is the best game ever made you have to understand it's Mm. the perfect video it's kind of a perfect game it's hard to argue with we should maybe do an episode about threes at some point Mm. i don't know it's not there isn't even to much talk to about. talk about. It's yeah, just like a flow state game. Like mm-hmm. this. Like people have asked me, like, how are you so good at threes? Because I'm I've gotten pretty high scores, and it's I'm just like, I, I can't even <laughs> describe it, it. Yeah, I didn't realize you were still playing it. I feel like we we talked about it years ago, and I yeah. I didn't realize you were just still doing it. Just All right. by habit, like whenever I just yeah. uh, have like when my wife and I are watching TV in bed, yeah, and I'm just like want to kill a few minutes, I just wow. do it. By default, um, <laughs> I also like to have something to do, like while I'm talking to someone, or like while I'm just kind of a multitasker by nation nature. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, I think that I think is the real appeal is like getting to know a game so well that you're like, all right, got this awesome thing. Now I'm going to really do well on this run, and mm-hmm. just kind of having that sort of mastery. And to your point, Maddie, I think Dark Souls has a kind of similar thing where sure. it's like you really get to know a boss fight so well that you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing really well on this run. Uh, really gonna really gonna nail it this time. I master. I, I dodge this ability just right. Oh yeah, I really really pulled it off this time. Although the difference with the roguelike. Is there is that random chance aspect that's really yeah, what you're absolutely. talking about is the well, good yes. feeling. It would be like if Dark Souls had a random roll at the beginning of a boss fight that sure. was like, this time around you're going to get five extra Estus Blast or whatever it may be, and you'd be like, oh, great. Well, so what I think of specifically is kind of speedrunning, um, yes. and how when you're speedrunning something, it's almost like you're treating every game as a roguelike, because you're like, oh, this boss didn't use this ability this time, yep. this is a good Gotta run, start we got over. this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. there's a 
lot to like about roguelikes in general. And um, Kirk, to your point earlier, I think the reason that we're seeing so many of these big games um, add them is because they're relatively cheap to make. You don't need to make a ton of new assets. You can you don't have to design a ton because of you do this procedural generation, so you don't have to customize every single level you're doing. There's a lot of kind of compelling reasons to make this sort of content part of your game. And when you do it as well as Valhalla does, then man, that's a win. That's a big win. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into that in a minute because, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about a little bit of specifics about those three examples that I cited um, just to give a little of my background. Yeah, I'm sort of similar to you, Jason. I've been playing these games for a little while, not as far back as Rogue, though I did play the original Diablo as well and didn't know that fun was game. A, a, yeah, it was fun. I thought it was really cool at the time. Like when it <laughs> Every came time you out, get to the butcher and he's like, fresh meat, and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> and there was that feeling of sort of... Uh, it's like a high, what it's not high risk, high reward. It's low stakes in a certain way because you die a lot and you're mm-hmm. not that attached to whatever so is happening in this risk, moment. So it's low risk, high reward, I guess. I suppose, yeah. Mm. So I'm thinking low about low risk, um, multi reward, random reward. <laughs> the the mindset that I, I think about when I imagine the feeling of playing a roguelike is uh, actually the game FTL, whose makers yes. then made another wow, game called. Yeah. Uh, into the Breach, which was also a fantastic uh, rogue-inspired game. And FTL is a game where you're in control of a starship that's trying to make it through this sort of journey through the stars, and all kinds of different things can happen to you along the way. You have to be able to sort of really quickly issue orders. You can pause the game, which is actually nice, and issue orders. You get very good at pausing and, you know, oh, no, the engine is on fire, and, like, the warp drive is out, and we're not going to be able to jump, and we're being attacked. Oh, we've been boarded, and, like, we have to vent the air out of this one section, and it's a lot of sort of ship management, and it gets very chaotic as you go. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you die a lot in that game, just like in all of these kinds of games, but there's that feeling that you get when you're on a really good run. Just your ship, it's got everything it needs. You have all of the, you know, all the oxygen and all the power and your crew is like super good and you have that feeling of it's both, I'm really excited because I have this cool thing and also I recognize that this cool thing could vanish at any moment (laughs) and it's probably already happened to you once or twice. So there's kind of an impermanence to it that Mm -hmm. I think really just dovetails well with the way that video games work and it's one of the things that makes all of these kinds of games so fun. Inscription, another good example. You wind up with a really good hand in a deck building roguelike. I know there are a million of those that people love. You can get a great hand and you get a great set of cards and it's a really good feeling but you also aren't too attached to it and sometimes in really long games you know you get too attached to a certain thing like in Dark Souls you kind of wind up a little locked into your build especially before you get a respec or in the older games where you only have a certain number of upgrade mats so you basically max out a weapon and then you just have to stick with that or just not even systemically you just get good at playing a certain way Mm -hmm. so then you just always do the same thing to every boss What I really like about these kinds of games is that they allow you to use a lot more of the game. So they push you to try different things because whatever. Um, Hades obviously was a a game that I loved as well. We all loved it. I think it was a really big moment for this style of game just because so many more people liked it. A big part of that is the narrative stuff you were talking about, Maddie, just that it had such a cool story that the story Mm -hmm. was built into the repetition. And also, I think that just this was something that Supergiant, the developer of that game, had been building toward. Like they had been working on making games that encouraged you to try different things. I really love their game Transistor 
because the systems of that game, it's not a roguelike, but that's built into it. There, You have this upgrade system for the sword that you're using, and you get some abilities that you really like. But if you take damage, your abilities are the things that take damage in that game. So your whatever move that you've been relying on over and over again will get broken if you take a hit. So then for a limited amount of time, you suddenly have to reconfigure the sword to work totally differently. And sometimes if you take a bunch of damage, you'll find yourself just like at the far reaches of your ability tree using stuff you never even knew existed before and then realizing that that's really fun. They kind of force you to change up your play style. A lot of games don't do that because they want to give you options and make you feel empowered. And then that's something that Hades did as well, especially with incentivizing you to use different weapons because the, each weapon in that game is like a whole different game. Mm-hmm. And I found for a while, I was like, Spear Boy, I just use the spear all the time. And then I realized like, oh man, the fists, like the punching fists are really awesome and they're totally different. And mm-hmm. eventually I've like played that game entirely through with every weapon yeah. yeah it's oh now i just want to play hades again man this is really getting me going. <laughs> hey you're gonna get to play hades too pretty soon i am and i'm so excited so do we want to talk about god of war valhalla for a second because let's we've all start with that. that so i think that these three examples we're going to talk about so that's god of war valhalla the last of us two no return and hitman world of assassination are all actually interestingly different than what we're than we were than a game like Hades or FTL, which is designed from the bottom up to be a roguelike. These are roguelike modes that are added to the game, which I agree, Jason, is a really cool thing to see, and it does seem like it's more doable. Like that's the sense playing it is you're like, oh, this seems like this wasn't too hard for them to make. And it's a great way to just keep using the great combat system they made for God of War, for example. Mm-hmm. But it does feel a little different because you kind of unlock different abilities, but you're basically, you know, you're Kratos. You have the like Kratos abilities that you had in the main game. But mm-hmm. anyways, yeah, let's start with let's start with Valhalla. I know, Maddie, you played a lot of it, right? What did you what did you think of it? I did, I did. I I feel like God of War Valhalla is actually really leaning on the narrative elements mm-hmm. that can be used to great effect in a roguelike where there is kind of the home base Hades-esque where the conversations change pretty much every time there's a character you can revisit. Like if there's someone there, you're like, oh, I better go talk to this person because they haven't been here in a a couple of runs. I got to check back in. But also over the course of each run, you run into people you know (laughs) and you get to have conversations with them as well. And I really liked all of those aspects of the game. I think people probably remember... God of War combat is fine to me. I know this is blasphemy right, to the two of you. Right, right. It's 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 fine. I, I think it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, it's not like this doesn't work if, if you don't love the God of War combat. It's perfectly fun, and you can still get something out of it just from a story vantage point, which is the way that I was engaging with it. And I still really liked changing up my play style as much as I could. I mean, it's Kratos. There's only so much you can do. He's never going to be a live archer like his son like, there's, <laughs> you're not gonna like totally change things Hades style you're, you're gonna have an mm-hmm. axe but I did really like the opportunities and encouragement to continue to change up how I was playing I did have to totally remember how to play God of War in the first place I'm sure that also happened to the two of you at least mm-hmm. a little bit in playing where I was like oh yeah I'm like Thor in this game I can throw my axe and it'll come back to me mm-hmm. so that was cool but mostly I just was like man, other games should do this with their stories. Like they should have more opportunities for the characters to kind of leave the house, go do some battles and then come back and have like an overarching story back at home base again. Mm -hmm. Because just as a storytelling mechanic, I think it's really effective and really cool. And I I just was really pleased with it. 
happening in a God of War game. You're just describing Midnight Suns again. I am. Um, and that's another great game. <laughs> yeah, it's something I really like about Valhalla is that it takes a lot of ideas from Hades in clever ways. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is um, kind of guiding you along a path that rewards you for sticking to a certain ability. And so like we were talking about, like mm-hmm. um, it's very much like, like you mentioned, Matt, you're encouraged to try different play styles as you go with Kratos and, and play around with the different weapons. But it does more than that. It kind of like um, the abilities are loaded in such a way that like you will get certain ones or you'll be more likely to get certain ones if you go down a certain path. If you, at the beginning, you're you're given one of two choices, like two choices to make um, and you can say okay i'm going to focus uh, more on the axe this time or i'm going to do go with the chains this time or whatever it is and i think that's a smart way to approach this type of game because it really feels like you're um kind of tailoring a build and you know the best way the optimal way to beat enemies as opposed to just kind of like having to choose from a hodgepodge of different abilities mm-hmm. every single time and so um i think that's a smart idea and, and something that hades really nailed the other thing is kind of the the giving you special bonuses if you choose specific things, like at the beginning of yeah. each run, if you choose a specific shield and a specific type of uh, perk or whatever, you'll you'll get um, extra bonuses for doing it that way, which is another thing that Hades Hades really uh, mastered. Yeah, that's true. I guess it wasn't even really fair when I said that you know you're kind of Kratos and Kratos is Kratos because actually God of War did introduce a ton of different. You know, shields, for example, and runic abilities. There are so many runic uh, abilities. Three, yeah, and three big weapons, mm-hmm. each of their own. Yeah. And, and Valhalla, uh, spoilers, but there's a whole new type of weapon. It's not quite a weapon, but I guess it's a new rage type of weapon mm-hmm. as well. Mm, do you mean like the blue sword that's technically from the other God of War games? Yeah. 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 And not a yeah. new weapon, if you think about sure, it. Sure, new for this yeah. iteration of God of War. I had to I mean. look that up, because I've never played the original God of Wars, and so Kratos pulls out this blue shiny sword, and he's being all emo about it, and not answering questions <laughs> from Mimir about what it is. And I was like, well, Google, Google, what it, what the heck is a sword? Yeah, oh. you didn't play 2018, right, I Manny? didn't. I was playing Dante's Inferno. So that was the whole, <laughs> the reason I asked that is because the, the whole, there was a giant plot point in 2018 about him putting the chains aside, and yeah. then taking them back out when he had to, which is like a part of the big part of the story as well. Right, so yes. similar yeah. echoes of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I actually have appreciated that from what I've played, like even just being encouraged to use the spear, which is a weapon that's pretty yes. cool, but I never really used it in Ragnarok. Just because well, you don't get it till the very end of the game. So you don't have many opportunities to use it. Right. And it's not essential. There's just it, it isn't encouraged in the way that a game with this kind of roguelike system can be like, OK, you now have runic abilities for the spear and only the spear. So you better use the spear. And then I can also just say, all right, cool. Well, on this run, I'm using the spear. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Where in the main game, it was just much more likely to be like, well, this is a big boss fight. I'm just going to use my axe because the axe mm-hmm. whips and like I can use the axe for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, ditto for the blades for that matter. I don't use those that much oh, in that's the main like my game. Favorite. but. They're so fun. They're fun. Yeah, no, they're great. I mean, all the weapons are really balanced. There's a sense playing this that I get playing a lot of these modes, just that I'm getting to really enjoy the work of all the people who made this game. Like a whole group of people spent forever designing that spear and making it into this super cool and very distinct weapon that then I'm guessing it got like 10% of the 
combat time compared to the axe and the sword for most people playing Ragnarok. So mm-hmm. now they add this mode that's like, all right, now we're really going to let you use it. Ditto for whatever, shields that have like a really kind of unusual yeah, which, combat style. When am I using the shield in God of War? Never. Right. I'm all offense and no defense. <laughs> that's it. Right. But I actually I kind of enjoy the shield play in the game in Valhalla, like using a shield as a, a weapon and a defensive maneuver. It's fun. Yeah, it's a smart way of encouraging players to just not feel as committed to things and then to just sample the vast array of systems and abilities that are put into these games. Like, God of War Ragnarok was overstuffed, but God of War Valhalla doesn't feel overstuffed because it edits for you. That's mm-hmm. true, and that's true of the story as well. Maddie, you were talking about loving the idea of having a game where you're in a kind of home base where you talk to everybody, then you go out and do stuff. And I was thinking, well, structurally, that is the same as, I don't know, Horizon Forbidden West. Like, there's a base in that game and you go out into the world then you come back or sweet code in too or whatever mass effect or any of those like rpgs but it doesn't quite have the same feeling because the game isn't as tightly edited it's not like you're in a loop where you just go out for 15 minutes and then you're back in this room and you talk to everyone again and it's like really layered where each time you see someone you know they have something new to say it's a much more sprawling and just very paced uh, very differently paced ability or uh, very differently paced set up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that it's a, a really cool to see a game edit itself in this way. And it's, I don't know, I, I wish that every like big AAA single player game did this. It's really cool that so many of them are. Well, mm-hmm. so the advantage that Valhalla has is that most of the people coming into this already know all the characters. And so it's much easier to connect to like, oh, cool, Freya has something to say when you already know the about the relationship that Kratos and Freya have. And it's a lot more impactful when, um, when Freya is saying, we want you to be the new God of War here when you ha- know all that history and context. Um, Hades, one of the things it was really good at was kind of like introducing these new characters and making you care about them almost from the get-go and make you want to keep keep talking to them and seeing what they have to say. But most games just don't have that same level, same right. caliber of storytelling, chops, and character building. And I'm specifically thinking about Horizon Forbidden West, which is a game that I, th- I thought was good, but like I just never cared about the characters in that game for one right. reason or another and had no interest in doing any of their quests at the base or anything like that. Hades yeah. did have the advantage that these are all mythological characters. Yes, I mean, you do kind of know part who of Orpheus it. is yes. or whoever from that's the beginning. True. So obviously their takes are distinct and the characters are cool and you're interested mm-hmm. in them. But yeah, they uh, they did have an advantage. Yeah, sure. But Zagreus being such a compelling kind of snarky like yes. uh, protagonist helped a lot with yeah. that as yeah, well. So a lot of that sure. was a writing, a writing strength. No, for sure. Like those characters in Horizon Forbidden West, if they had been written with the same verve and excitement mm-hmm. as Hades, like it yeah. would have been the same situation, even if yeah. they're not uh, mythological characters. Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting contrast to a roguelike mode that doesn't have that kind of a story. I guess let's talk about The Last of Us 2 a little bit. I think I'm the only one that's played that, the no return mode in the mm-hmm. um, the new PlayStation 5 version of the game. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's 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 critically compelling and I think really well made and fun to play. I mean, the combat in The Last of Us Part Two was always for me. It's probably its strongest aspect. I mean, when you're in the thick of it in a game or in that game, like when Ellie is in Seattle and she's in this kind of sprawling outdoor mall, going in and out of buildings with clickers and infected and scavengers running around, and the AI is just absolutely incredible. The animations, the way that the fights are designed, like it's some of the best 
combat design I've ever experienced in a video game. And it kind of, it's really interesting to take that and just totally remove it from the story. So No Return is totally just structured as, it feels to me like multiplayer levels, like every level in it feels like a multiplayer level. It would work just fine as a multiplayer, you know, whatever like control a point. Left for Dead kind of a multiplayer shooter or like The Last of Us multi like the la- multiplayer in The Last of Us which was fantastic. Like it mm-hmm. had a really good competitive multiplayer mode and it was set in maps that were different yep. areas from the game. These maps feel kind of like those maps. Like it feels like playing horde mode in Gears of War 2 yep. where you'd be in a multiplayer map but you'd be fighting against enemies. This feels kind of like that. And you have to make it through an escalating series of levels. They get more and more complex with different types of enemies. You can play as Ellie, you can play as Abby, and then eventually you can play as like Dina or Joel or like all kinds of characters who wouldn't have even been Zombie doing Joel? what they're doing because there's no narrative framework at all. There's like none. The only narrative that exists is just what guns have you gotten? What upgrades have you gotten? What path are you taking through the levels? And I understand that decision. It's the, probably the best decision that they could have made. It would have been very strange for a game with such a like weighty story to suddenly add like new story elements or even new like dialogue barks for the characters yeah because they would have had to like set it during a specific time in the game which is kind of what i thought they were gonna do when i heard about this mode I was no like, and i think i mean i think that given the options this is the best choice for them to make but it is very interesting to then play through this game that still has some of the awfulness and the intensity of the violence, which was a part of the narrative of The Last of Us Part Two. Like, when you kill a, an enemy in this game, their friends will call out for them by name. This is in the roguelike mode. That still happens. So you're still wow. feeling like, wow, I feel bad for murdering these people in that way that was an important part of what The Last of Us 2 was trying to do. I, I remember that just got stupid after. <laughs> no, I know you guys didn't like it, but like I, but there, The Last of Us Part Two was going for something very yeah, yeah, yeah. weighty. They were trying to going, make the yeah. violence feel impactful. We're just telling jokes. We're, we're picking up what you're putting down. It's interesting <laughs> seeing all of that put into the context of a just straight up action game with no story. Right. Because yeah. it's really good. I mean, when you're playing it, you're on the edge of your seat. It's like incredibly designed combat with some of the best this, like action systems I've ever interacted with. It's just very weird to be playing as Ellie just because it accompanies the game that it accompanies. I don't really know how to resolve that or what to do with that. It's still cool that it exists like the people who made it are probably really proud of it because it really is like an amazing roguelike experience and it only falters for me because of the single player game that came before it which is just kind of a weird thing ludonarrative dissonance in a nutshell (laughs) it's like ludonarrative dissonance across games almost (laughs) there's no narrative yeah. It's just Ludo on its own. Right. You in remove a vacuum. the narrative, and yet still, <laughs> it's still there. Well, it's Ludo narrative distance because it's the same characters as, as yeah, the game. So it's, and we have a narrative, narrative association um, with those Yeah, characters. that's a very good point. I wonder if they had made it without. I think it, it probably would have worked better for you if it was just kind of randomly generated. Like I wonder. I really characters. wonder. That's a very good point. I don't know if it would because I feel like you need the emotional resonance of seeing these characters, even if that's paired with the kind of mental weirdness of being like what I'm fighting as Abby and you know Joel what, in co-op or whatever I don't know if there's multiplayer I think all. they could have just made it that you play as one of the kind of minor characters 
from the game and you're just that one character and you just get to be that person throughout the whole thing. That could have mm-hmm. been. Or you're just Ellie the whole time or Abby the whole time. No, but whatever. not Ellie or Abby. No, that's the point is like you're not playing as someone right. that you know super you're well. You're like some some person. Yeah, like a minor <laughs> character from, from the game. And like you just play as them the whole time. I could have seen that actually working a little better. And just they're on some scavenging mission right. where they're running into a bunch of enemies that they have to fight through. It mm-hmm. would have still been the same exciting combat. I don't need to be playing as Ellie for that to feel exciting to me. I could just be playing as some person. It'd be nice to have like the same person that you kind of get attached to over the course of the game, but it doesn't need to be. Yeah, and then it would kind of be its own story about this individual person that you get to know, even if they barely talk at all, you would still kind of feel like you knew them. And the way that you play a video game and we all kind of feel like we know Master Chief on some level because we are him. Even right. though he doesn't have a personality at all. Yeah, I feel like right. that'd be interesting if they just had a no return protagonist who just was the mm-hmm. protagonist. And then you don't have the baggage of like, oh, I'm playing as Abby and I have Abby's backstory. Right. Or the weirdness <laughs> of like when you play as Joel, I think Joel just has all of Abby's animations because they didn't do all new animations. So it's not like Joel does his animations from the first game. Wow. So it's just gets what a little. What an insult to Joel's memory. It just gets a little weird. I think some people actually do think that. Did you guys? Uh, did you guys watch the new documentary they just put out, Grounded Two? No, I really, I, I kind of want to. It sounds interesting enough. Yeah, how is Have it? Have you watched it? Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it's hard to watch any video game documentary without comparing it to the Psychonauts the one, fine. which is so transcendent yeah. that it just yeah. like blows everything out of the water. And so this one, it'll spend like thirty seconds on something that might have been an entire episode in the Psychonauts documentary. But well, right, this one's two hours long too, right? right? Two and hours not long, thirty hours, hours or whatever. But it's interesting. There's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of interesting yeah. kind of info about the the making of the game and um, how it all how it all went down and how COVID affected them and then how the hack affected them and so on and so forth. Yeah, that was a dark yeah. a dark time online. They mentioned the word crunch. That's good. Yeah. Um, they talk about trying to fix their work-life balance issues, which I thought was interesting. Uh, nice. That's uh, good. They talk about kind of hiring producers and working to try to make things better for the next game. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it at some point. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Hitman World of Assassination, because that, I think, is another really cool and really interesting roguelike mode that was added. This was last fall, I guess. This was added to Hitman 3, where really what they did was they took all of the levels from the first two Hitman games. This is of the more recent trilogy. There are all of these huge levels with a billion NPCs in them and all of these challenges that have been designed over many, many, many years. They took all of that and put it under one roof. And then they built a new roguelike mode that uses every single level, every single challenge, every weapon, every system they've ever made for all of these games. So just like years and years and hundreds of hours of work. And they've turned it into this one roguelike experience that to me at least feels a little different than the other ones we've been talking about. It feels like... Yeah, it sounds way harder and more ambitious and complex. (laughs) It could only exist in a game like this and it feels like a final exam. It's really, really fun. I mean, it is super fun to play. But it's just like if you if you've played a lot of Hitman, it's so cool to use all of the knowledge that you've built up over years, not in a way that felt very challenging at the time. Like for me, I just played the Hitman games. I know Sapienza pretty well because I like liked that game many years ago. So to have a new challenge in it where it's like, okay, you get one shot, you gotta take this guy out and then get out. And it's that kind of, you know, one shot, you know, disposable run mentality that really lends itself to this kind of game. Um, It works so well. I think that it's amazing that they did it. I felt kind of 
almost, uh, I don't know, relieved to see them take all of this work and this incredible thing that they built and actually turn it into a box set, you know, a Criterion collection that has everything under one roof. Just because there were so many times over the years where it felt like Hitman was going to get kind of derailed by various stupid things that shouldn't have been derailed by the online requirement of the first game or the fact that the second game tried to fold in the first game, but then you can only get the one on Steam and the other one wasn't on Steam. Or I don't even remember this. Yeah, and it was like hard to understand what to buy. Well, so wait, can you back up a second and talk about how it actually works? Yeah, how does does this work (laughs) as a roguelike? So you have to go through every single... (laughs) Oh, okay. I thought I talked about this last year on the show, but I guess I can explain it. So you are, once again, Agent 47, and you're given Mm -hmm. this kind of compound, this underground layer that's your kind of home base. And it starts with nothing in it. Uh-huh. And then you unlock a few basic weapons and you go to a computer just, and it gives you like your first being challenge. being an assassin anywhere. You start out in a featureless basement with nothing yeah, in it. And exactly. And you unlock a couple weapons. Well, and the idea <laughs> is that there is this like a more kind of ongoing narrative where you're just building yourself up as a freelance assassin. Got it. So you go to the computer and the computer says, here's three missions. It's uh, There's one in Sapienza. There's one in the U.S small town and there's one like I don't I don't know wherever on this on this island mm-hmm. and these are randomly this is part of the random element is that the missions are random the, yeah it gives you a choice and then they're chosen from the locations of the first three games but because between DLC and these games there are like a billion areas like it feels totally ludicrous if you came to it fresh you'd be like how is this game so big each of these areas is this fully fleshed out massive you know <laughs> interlocking complicated yeah. contraption of a world so you can just pick which one you like best or just which one sounds most interesting. And it gives you some parameters and a target and you go there. It's not totally random. I think they've put some thought into which characters would make interesting targets, but it could be anybody. You know, it's not like the the known targets from the story oh, okay. that are still it's walking different. around in the world. It'll just be some civilian or some guy who's in a hard to reach building, and then he'll have some guards around him or whatever. You have to try to take them out and then get out. If you do, over time, you like build up better guns and better starting loadouts. And soon, by the end, I, I didn't get that far, but by the end, your little underground bunker is like weapons all over the walls and all kinds of cool shit it's everywhere. And it's fully decked out. Yeah, and it's become your bat cave. He's basically a super villain. Terrifying. <laughs> so it's just cool. It's like a really smart way of... Wait, so what is the roguelike of it? Exactly. Well, it's that you only have one shot. It's not like on Hitman each map will, you only have one shot, or progress or like the entire run you only have one shot. On each each assassination that you attempt, and each okay, so it's basically Got like it. you have everyone is an elusive target. Basically, is, is it's, how it's yes, it's structured. very similar okay. to the elusive target. So when you setup. said it was a roguelike, I was imagining a run where you have to like keep assassinating the targets without ever dying. <laughs> like that's what I was picturing when you said it was like roguelike. Well, it's sort of both. Like you're working your way through a syndicate, and that's a series of missions, and those missions all tell you who your target is. And if you screw up, you lose your progress. Like it's it's definitely a roguelike. Got and it. then at the end, Got you it. have to take out the syndicate leader, and that's like an elusive target where you. You don't know who they are and you have to identify them, you know, based on clues by exploring the map. Got mm-hmm. it. There's kind of that feeling of stress but also relief that comes with, okay, I don't have to quick save. I don't have to, like, do any saves coming or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just have to figure this out. And it leads, again, to really using all of Hitman's systems, which, again, this is like a really complicated immersive sim. But because it offers so much freedom, when I would play it, I'd always just, like, I don't know, kill the guy in the best, most silent way possible and then finish the level. And it was very rare that I would like everything would go pear-shaped and I'd find myself having to shoot a bunch of guys and run and try to get out. But in this mode, that does happen. And it's mm-hmm. um, it's really fun whenever that happens. 
Are you ever cool. in a situation where they're like, okay, you have to kill this guy, but you only have a briefcase, and it's like just an absurd situation where you just Not have to beat him to usually. death? usually, <laughs> though the original game does have that because yeah. there are those, I can't remember what they're called, oh, escalations, I think, where you'll have a target and then you have to kill the target again with an increasing series of restrictions. Mm-hmm. And eventually those do get to where it's like you have to kill all three of these guys within 30 seconds of one another using only environmental kills. And they've always designed it where you there is a way to do do it. You just have to figure it out. It almost gets into speedrunning territory to bring it back to that, Jason. Right. Where it's like a puzzle where you just have to figure out like, oh, what's the exact one way that I Mm -hmm. can do this? And there's going to be only one solution to this specific puzzle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. I guess roguelike is a decent name for what that is, but it's almost like its own entire category of thing as you've laid it out. Yeah. There's definitely that element of impermanence and the way that it, it, forces you to improvise with what you've got. And I think that all of those elements are, it really feels like you're playing a roguelike. But then again, right, because it's such a huge game, it's the culmination of so many different levels and so many systems. And it has all these interesting things in common with the base game. It's sort of its own thing. It's true. But I, Mm -hmm. I love what they did with it. I mean, I really do. I would love to see more games, especially games in this style, design this sort of challenge, you know, like arcane games, any kind of immersive sim or stealth-based game. Yeah, like a, a Deathloop version of it or something. Well, there was Moon Crash. Yeah, Prey Moon Crash actually is a yeah. great example. It reminds me of um, the Elden Ring mod where it just randomizes which boss fight you're going to get. I mean, that's kind of more mm-hmm. of a microcosm version of what you're describing. Like, I don't know how you would randomize everything in Elden Ring, but I, I'm always fascinated by watching those runs where it's like people who just suddenly have to face Melania or whatever, but they have almost <laughs> nothing at the beginning of the game. And then mm-hmm. like later in the game, they're like, oh, this is actually really easy because I'm way far along. Like to just have the addition of randomizing specific enemies and assets from a game or like the legend of zelda randomizers those are always really fun streams to watch for the exact same reason because it's like just adding in the element of random chance on top of mechanics and a character that you already understand how to how to deal with all of that but what if they were in this totally other permutation that is the recipe for fun (laughs) yeah it's a thing that players will do on their own with mods like you're like you're talking about but it's really cool when the designers yeah. of the game have the freedom they and the should. ability to do that kind of thing. And yeah, I think it's totally the kind of thing people should do more of. I would. It certainly has made me want to go back to all three of those games, actually. All three of the games that I've said. I've gone back and played and have been really happy to do it. Roguelikes are cool. Roguelikes are cool. I think that's our <laughs> verdict. And uh, Hades 2 is going to be great. Do we have any other single-player game that we wish had a roguelike mode? Is that We can end on that. Uh, I'm trying to think of what. I can't just say Metroid. That's not allowed. I would say that like anything like though I mean Resident Evil does have modes kind of That's like that. True. Like some of those time trial modes in Resident Evil are really fun and any kind of survival horror game in that style is great. I think Dead Space would have been really fun to play something like that in the Dead Space remake. Oh yeah, that'd be um, great. Any game like that where you're kind of managing resources and fighting your way through rooms full of monsters like it really lends itself to this sort of thing so yeah mm-hmm. those come to mind anyway what do you think jason sweet code and two roguelike <laughs> <laughs> i like i mean there are a lot of final fantasy randomizers that i think are always really fun because they start you off with like um an airship and it'll be like you have to go around and get x number of key <laughs> items and mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very fun way to uh to play yeah. those that's games. the same kind of idea yeah, it's a very cool it's it's a similar idea um and you really have to know a game extraordinarily well in order to uh, be able to play this and and get good at it and so yeah it's interesting 
That's cool. Yeah, it's definitely a cool ongoing trend, and we'll see how it develops. I, it's cool that all these recent big games have had this, and I hope we'll get mm-hmm. to see more of it. Yeah, I hope there are more. Yeah, and then in the meantime, Hades 2 will come out, and we'll get to play that, and that'll yeah, be pretty maybe, cool, too. Maybe uh, Tears of the Kingdom will uh, we'll stick in. A, that would be wild if that happened. That would be wild. If they were just oh like, God. yeah, we're going to make a roguelike version of this. God, that'd be sick. <laughs> that would be pretty sick. I would play it. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back with one more thing. My name's Doug Duguay, and I'm here to talk about my podcast in the middle of the one you're listening to. It's called Valley Heat, and it's about my neighborhood, the Burbank Rancho Equestrian District, the center of the world when it comes to foosball, frisbee golf, and high-speed freeway roller skating. And there's been a Jaguar parked outside on my curb for 10 months. I have no idea who owns it. I have a feeling it's related to the drug drop that was happening in my garbage can a little over a year ago. And if this has been a boring commercial, imagine 45 minutes of it. Okay, Valley Heat. It's on every month on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Check it out, but honestly, skip it. These are the Chronicles of the Rancho Equestrian District in Burbank, Burbank, California. California. These are the events events taking place in my house around my house. Hello, sleepyheads. Sleeping with Celebrities is your podcast pillow pal. We talk to remarkable people about unremarkable topics, all to help you slow down your brain and drift off to sleep. For instance, we have the remarkable Neil Gaiman. I'd always had a vague interest in live culture, food preparation. Sleeping with Celebrities, hosted by me, John Moe, on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Night-night. All right, and we are back with one more thing. Jason, how about you go first? Yeah, so um, I really, uh, Super Bowl 58 just happened, and I kind of want to recap it. Um, problem is, <laughs> problem is, we are recording this the week before the Super Bowl because Maddie and I are going to be traveling after the Super Bowl. So as people hear this, they will know the outcome of what happened, um, but we don't. So instead, I'll just try to recap it based on what I think will happen. Well, this is so, amazing. Okay. Uh, uh, the Chiefs just came out like all cylinders firing. They like mm-hmm. looked up at Taylor Swift in the box and they were like, "Man, we got to do it for for Tay Tay." Um, <laughs> she just announced a new album. She just won the Grammy. Mm-hmm. Like we got to do this for her and so Travis Kelsey and Pat Mahomes teamed up to score uh, 40 touchdowns um, and uh, they scored scored 210 points and Travis Kelsey won Super Bowl MVP and Mm -hmm. after his ceremony the 49ers whatever scored I don't know 7 points they won Mm -hmm. touchdown and Jason placed bets on all the above and won I did I did and won won big time uh, (laughs) which I'm now in in Vegas uh, spending all that money on the crafts table Um, and (laughs) so Travis Travis Kelsey gets up and it's like an incredible game. He's like, oh my God, like I've never played this well. And he gets up and he's holding the Super Bowl MVP trophy and he's like, Tay Tay, this one's for you. And then he kneels and he pulls out a ring out of the trophy. Like he grabs it from within within the trophy. Wow, like they pre-placed it in there because he that's how confident he was. That's how confident <laughs> he was. I'm he taped it on propose. the inside. <laughs> and he and he uh, gets on one knee and proposes to Taylor Swift on mm-hmm. the Super Bowl stage. Do you think the listeners are bored? 
listening to this because like they all saw this. Yeah, already. they know this right. happened. Yeah, so I'm just kind of <laughs> and they're like, like, why are they going over yeah, this point yeah, by point? They, we we know. Yeah, it's we all know. anyone's been talking about oh, for the last week. We've all it's seen. Pretty this. wild. And meanwhile, uh, on the other side, so Brock Purdy, he is the quarterback of the 49ers. I don't know if you guys know this. This is a fun, fun tidbit. Brock Purdy, who has just played in the Super Bowl, he is called Mister Irrelevant because he was the last pick in the NFL rude. draft. What a rude uh, name. Nobody. Well, it's it's but, kind but of. But he's like, like it re-embraced it now because he's not actually irrelevant. Well, it's not about re-embracing it. No, it's just that's what you call like the last pick in any draft. Mister Irrelevant is what? like wow. that's that's just the name, Mister Irrelevant. Wow. Um, and so Brock Purdy is the first uh, like last pick to or like uh, first in a long time to like become a starting quarterback and really seize like the opportunity and so it's That's pretty cool. pretty cool that he made it to the Super Bowl but alas the 49ers defense yeah. was not able to stop Travis Kelsey and Pat Mahomes from <laughs> just like uh, going to town just running train all over them uh, and yeah just congratulations to the Chiefs and yeah, to wow. uh, Travis cool. Kelsey and Taylor Swift on getting engaged she said yes by the way of um, course, of course. That's at the wouldn't? Super Bowl uh, and uh yeah, and congrats to Usher who came out and just did an incredible halftime performance <laughs> that involved just yeah, like congrats to him on that. To yeah. congrats to him, holograms of every dead singer that you could possibly think of just showed up on mm-hmm. stage with him. Frank Sinatra and Usher did a duo. Frank Sinatra, um, yeah, <laughs> this, this, Elvis. These have all become memes by this point. Kurt Cobain it's and Usher, crazy. like oh Kurt saying all apologies together. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, David Bowie was up there. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. It was pretty rocking. In fact, people loved it so much they extended the halftime to be an extra couple hours just for, to fit everybody in, and that was pretty really. astounding. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. controversial. Like everybody was up really late that night watching mm-hmm. just the halftime show, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Yep. it was yep, fine. Yep. The players weren't tired at all after that. No. They still were doing great. Yeah, they're energized by the music. <laughs> oh, also one more thing happened. Uh, crypto came back. Uh, oh, cool. It, it that's right. That's right. And now we're all in on crypto. That was wild. Yeah, we well, all got rich. Pretty, uh, we went wild. to the moon. We mm-hmm. we rode the yep. whole thing to the moon. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Matt Damon came out and he was like, "Fortune favors the bold," and <laughs> we were all like, "Oh, actually, yeah, it does." And that so turns out you're right about that. That's true. Got some crypto. Yes, it was a, it was a big Sunday. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, yeah, Super Bowl Fifty Eight. <laughs> just a great time. Just a really a really yeah. great uh, great performance all around. And congrats again to the Chiefs and Travis and Tay Tay. Yeah, excited for them. Nice. Well, thanks, Jason, for that entirely accurate uh, recap of everything that happened on Sunday. (laughs) Maddie, what is your one more thing? All right. My one more thing is a television show called King of the Hill. Uh, So Dina and I have actually been watching King of the Hill for months, and it's a really good television show. There's like 19 seasons of it. People know I didn't watch television growing up. Wasn't a thing in my house. Uh, Dina is too young to have grown up with King of the Hill. We have a seven-year age difference. Just a fun fact. I'm 37. She's 30. <laughs> anyway, mm. so we're watching King of the Hill. Do you? Did you two watch this show? Because we're yes. all a little we're all bit, but not here. not regularly. Yeah, because it was after The Simpsons, so I would always watch. You're right, it after and you were Simpsons. a Simpsons mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I know Sunday that. Nights. So, I really love this show, and I'm now yeah. one of those people who's just 
trying to convert others into becoming King of the Hill fans. And that is That's a great what show. I will now do yeah. on this very episode. So the premise of this show, this joke came out before people were making all the jokes about boomers that they make today. But it is about a man who lives in Arlen, Texas, and his name is Hank Hill, and he is a boomer, and he loves Ronald Reagan. And the show is an extremely gentle sweet mockery of the idea of being those things that is kind of almost on Hank Hill's side and lets him be right about things, but also allows his young son, Bobby, to repeatedly own him. And Bobby is, of course, a millennial, although he's 10, 10 to 13 on the show, depending on which episode or arc you're watching. And it is like the most relatable possible television show for someone mm. my age. I, I didn't grow up with a, a Reagan loving person in my family, but both my parents are from the South. My dad actually moved around a lot growing up. We don't need to get into Maddie's backstory, but there's many jokes in this show that I, Maddie, can really understand because like they really remind me of family members and like a lot of the politics and specific time period of the show just really, mm. really work for me. And it's also just heartwarming in a way that I really didn't expect. Like a lot of humor from this time period has kind of a mean, disaffected spirit to it. And that's fine. I mean, I, I grew up listening to Nirvana. I was really upset about Kurt Cobain being in the halftime show, by the way. I was I was really <laughs> upset by that decision. It's pretty like, sacrilegious. I, I can be disaffected and jaded. I can get on board with humor like that. But that's mm -hmm. not what King of the Hill is at all. And... I really like it. I'm really digging it. There there have been just so many episodes that Dina and I have had like full conversations about and being like, wow, like this reminds us of this or that happening in our childhoods or just, you know, conversations we've had with our boomer parents. So if that's you, just just try the pilot episode. It's an incredible pilot episode, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. watch the whole show. It's really, really good. King of the Hill. Good television show. Now that we're grown-up millennials, I feel like we appreciate the merits of propane a lot more. See, it never stops being funny, is the <laughs> thing. Like, Hank Hill's obsession with propane throughout the entire show is really good. It's Incredible. great. There's well, an early episode. There's there's an early episode where they have a flashback to Hank Hill as a child, where like all the other kids are talking about their career goals, and they're all like, "I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president." And he's like, "I want to sell propane and propane <laughs> accessories." And like the joke is like Hank Hill's dreams came true because he just was like, "I know who I am," and he knew who he was from moment one. Love That's it. who he is. It was funny, Maddie. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was talking about learning a lot about propane because we had to run our house off of a generator. And you immediately yes. were like, oh, yeah, like Hank Hill. And even at the time, I was like, interesting pull for Maddie. Like, yes, I guess he is a famous pop culture character associated with propane. But why Hank Hill? Well, he's the famous pop culture character associated with propane, actually. An interesting thing about that show is that so that show was co-created by Greg Daniels and Mike Judge. So yes. Mike Judge was the creator of Beavis and Butthead, who would mm -hmm. go on to write Office Space, yep. and like he wrote Idiocracy. Yeah, and he, there's definitely like a kind of a sour, like a darkness, a cynicism. Yeah, like Idiocracy is is kind of not my thing. <laughs> no, it's pretty pretty mean. <laughs> it's pretty mean. But Greg Daniels would go on to make Parks and Recreation and The Office. Right. So and so they kind cool of balance mix each of their other two, out. Yeah. Yes, that's where I'm going with that. It's a cool yeah. mix of their two. Uh, mentalities, their two approaches mm -hmm. to storytelling and character. It's pretty great. It's like if Parks and Rec is too cloying and idiocracy is like weird and mean, King of the Hill is there yeah. for you. <laughs> I know people love it. I've always wanted to watch it. Maybe we'll just watch it. It, uh, you should it does watch seem it. like a pretty great show. It's really, really funny. I love really Boomhauer. I've always loved Boomhauer. Oh my God. 
fun uh-huh. to have a character who talks funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nice. Well, my one more thing is also an animated television show and one that is really interesting. And I think that maybe some listeners won't have heard of. So the show is called Scavenger's Reign. Do either of you know this show? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. Maddie's heard of it. No. So this is a show that's on Max, R.I.P. HBO, but it is a Max <laughs> show. Um, I, I started watching it because some friends recommended it. They were like, this show is really cool. You should check it out. Um, Emily and I just put it on, and whoa, it makes a hell of a first impression. It's not like anything I've seen in a very long time. It's an animated show, definitely a very adult animated show. It's not like a kid's cartoon at all. It's about a group of people on what appears to be kind of a colony ship, that's set out with a whole bunch of other colony ships in a kind of some sci-fi future. And they got lost. Um, The beginning of the show is basically the people at the home base saying, oh, one of our ships didn't make it through the jump. And then it just cuts to this show. (laughs) And the whole show is about a handful of people, kind of three main groups. I'm at least, I haven't finished the first season, so maybe there are more. But it's sort of three main groups of people who have made it off of the ship, which was stuck in orbit, and onto the surface of this alien planet, and are trying to survive and kind of get back to the ship and just make it out or get home. But what sets it apart from any other shows that have had that kind of lost in space, you know, that kind of setup, is the imagination on display, the way that they've imagined this alien world. Because I've never seen anything like it. It's so thrilling and strange and constantly uh, surprising and interesting. This world is just totally bizarre. It really feels like what it would be like to be on an alien planet. They can breathe, so there's oxygen, so they are able to walk around. But everything beyond that is just the weirdest looking plant or animal or creature you've ever seen behaving in a way that kind of explains itself biologically once you see how it's working. There will be like a a huge sea slug will pull up onto the beach and it'll start like eating these eggs that were out on the beach because those are its eggs that it's putting into its sack because there's a storm coming. So then it goes and floats out in the ocean and they actually hide inside of it to get out of the storm so they don't get hit. Or I don't know. I mean, it's it, I can't even describe it. I could try and I would just fall short. I could not possibly describe the visual strangeness and splendor of this show. It reminds me at times of old 80s anime that I used to watch. There's definitely some body horror, some pretty crazy stuff that happens. Sometimes it reminds me of Miyazaki movies, of Studio Ghibli movies where, you know, like a little weird freak will just kind of walk through the frame and you never see him again. But it's this delightful two seconds of just something beautiful and weird happening. But yeah, it kind of just defies description. You really just have to see it. Episodes are a half hour long. I really recommend it. If if you're feeling like, ah, I'm watching all the shows everyone's watching, I'd love to see something more imaginative and odd, something that kind of sparks my imagination. Really, the show is not like anything I've almost ever seen. It's very, very weird and very cool. Uh, I'm really, uh, we're both really, really loving it. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to shout it out uh, for anyone who thinks that sounds interesting. Uh, I think I think a lot of our listeners would like it. So that's called Scavenger's Reign. It's on Max and uh, it's very, very good. Mm. Yeah, You can also watch it if you want to keep up with social conversations at polygon.com with your coworkers. That'd be another reason why maybe you would want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> All of our polygon.com worker listeners yeah, are you the, there. the folks at Polygon are into it? It's definitely like a cool sci-fi show that people refer to. Yeah, I can see that. I'm not surprised that people who are into like kind of more interesting, like hipper, edgier stuff are into it. It is definitely feels like groundbreaking mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I'm just there being like, 
Dale Gribble's a really funny character on King of the Hill. You guys heard of him? <laughs> you guys heard of Hank Hill? He's a pretty interesting guy. They still let me work there. I don't know. That's good. They haven't run you out just yet. All right. Well, that is another episode of Triple Click. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, thanks to all of our members for supporting our show. Until next week, Maddie and Jason, I'll, I'll see you then. See you guys next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.